0: Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we dare ashtar, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to Kai, the show where we take the things from the Bible, we attempt to apply the things of life that we find in the world around us to the pages of Scripture, and we draw from them the things that show us how we ourselves are supposed to live. So, this week we are going to finish Genesis 24. This is the chapter that we began in last week. Much of what we'll read this week will actually seem like a repeat of the information that we read and covered last week, and this is a convention that Scripture uses in many areas. A scripture will repeat the same story, or the same section, or the same set of instructions, and each time, the author will change something in the second from the first. I've mentioned it before, but I'm going to repeat it today. A few years back, as I was searching for God, I finally determined for myself that there was, in fact, a God. I wasn't sure what that God's properties were yet. Was God impersonal and unconscious, a sort of a spiritual force of nature, as Buddhism and Taoism describes? Was God simply one of many, with the Creator so far beyond us that it made no sense to worship Him, and instead worship a closer, more localized God who can then be manipulated, such as Hinduism, Wicca, and paganism describes? Was God the very personal force of love, whose only concern was love, and justice was of no concern at all, as the New Age describes? Was God simply a part of everything, and everything is part of God, as pantheism teaches? Well, Each one of these traditions contains aspects in it that match each other, as well as Christianity and the teachings of the Bible. And as I studied each, I became convinced that the similarities that run through each are in fact truth. And that's good, but that did not get me to where I wanted to be, because I desired to define and understand an aspect of the God. Because in each of these traditions, with all of their similarities, they each had something different to say about the nature of God or gods. In essence, I was really no closer to understanding God after learning about each of these than I had been in the beginning. All I had found were some universal truths. And that's awesome. That They're necessary and they're important. But they did very little to inform me about who God is. And I spent a lot of time thinking about that. All that I had learned... I trying to distill all of these truths into something meaningful. And after a while, it struck me. And I think it was perhaps God that opened my eyes to a truth that is highly valuable. And it's a skill that served me extremely well since then. And that truth is this. When looking for truth, look for the similarities in a manner. But when searching for the truth, that's when you have to compare and contrast the differences. And it's in the differences that the truth of a matter will be revealed. And there's one more fact that we have to add to this, mix. Ancient authors Ancient authors weren't concerned with precision in the same way that we are, and this can be extremely frustrating to us. Our history books are concerned with dates and events recounted in a very precise and orderly manner. In the ancient Near East, they weren't. Ancients would attempt to convey a truth through the telling of a story, not through the recounting of events. And this forces us to examine the story for the truth that the author is affirming and many times the story is simply a vehicle for the discussion of a much deeper topic but because of our upbringing because of our education and our culture this process then becomes difficult for us and so we have to work at this discovery but we must allow scripture to be what it is we cannot force scripture to conform to us we must allow ourselves To conform to it so that's what we'll primarily be focusing on today the repeat of the events in the early part of this chapter and finding the differences between these events and i think they'll point us to the truth that the author is affirming and once we have that then we can look for other examples of the same thing occurring in scripture so let's go ahead and finish off genesis 24 beginning in verse 34. genesis 24 beginning in verse 34 through the end of the chapter And he said, I am Abraham's servant, and Hashem has blessed my master exceedingly, and he has become great. And he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and male and female servants and camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and he has given to him all that he has. And my master made me swear, saying, Do not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanite, in whose land I dwell. But go to my father's house and to my relatives, and take a wife for my son. And I said to my master, What if the woman does not follow me? But he said to me, HaShem, before whom I walk, sends his messenger with you, and shall prosper your way. And you shall take a wife for my son from my relatives, and from my father's house. Then when you go to my relatives, you are to be released from this oath. And if they do not give her to you, then you are released from my oath. And this day I came to the fountain and said, HaShem, Elohim my master, Abraham, please, if you are prospering the way in which I am going, See, I am standing by the fountain of water, and when the young woman comes to draw water, and I say to her, Please give me a little water from your jar to drink. And she says to me, Drink, and let me draw for your camels too. Let her be the woman whom Hashem has appointed for my master's son. And I had not yet ended speaking in my heart when, see, Rivka was coming out with her jar on her shoulder. And she went down to the fountain and drew water, and I said to her, Please let me drink. And she hurried and let her jar down from her shoulder and said, Drink. And let me water your camels, too. So I drank, and she watered the camels, too. And I asked her and said, Whose daughter are you? And she said, The daughter of Betuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. Then I put the nose ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrist. And I bowed my head, and I worshipped Hashem and blessed Hashem, Elohim of my master Abraham, who had led me in the true way to make the daughter of my master's brother for his son. And now if you are going to show loving commitment and truth to my master, let me know, and if not, let me know, so that I turn to the right or to the left. And Lavan answered Betuel too and said, The matter comes from Hashem. We are not able to speak to you, either evil or good. See, Rivka is before you. Take her and go, and let her be your master's son's wife, as Hashem has spoken. And it came to be when Abraham's servant heard their words, that he bowed himself towards the earth before Hashem. And the servant brought out ornaments of silver and ornaments of gold and garments and gave them to Rivka. He also gave costly gifts to her brother and her mother. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night. When they arose in the morning, he said, Let me go to my master. But the brother and her mother said, Let the young woman stay with us a few days, and at least ten. Then you go. And he said to them, Do not delay me, since Hashem has prospered my way. Let me go, so that I go to my master. And they said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. So they called Rivka and said to her, Are you going with this man? And she said, I shall go. So they let go Rivka, their sister and her nurse, and Avraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rivka and said to her, Let our sister become the mother of thousands, of ten thousands, and let your seed possess the gates of those who hate them. And Rivka and her young women arose, and they rode on their camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rivka and left. And Yitschak came from the way of Be'er Lecha Roy, for he dwelt in the south. And Yitzhak went out to meditate in the field in the evening, and he lifted his eyes and looked, and he saw the camels coming. And Rivka lifted her eyes, and when she saw Yitschak, she dismounted from her camel. And she had said to her servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. So she took a veil, and she covered herself. And the servant told Yitschak all the matters he had done. And Yitschak brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. And he took Rivka, and she became his wife. And he loved her. Thus Yitschak was comforted after his mother's death. All right, so this week we begin with the speech that the servant gives upon entering Betuel's home. If we remember back over the 33 verses of last week and all the way back to seven days ago, you remember that? So long ago. We'll remember that there was an archetype at play in this chapter, right? And the type that is here is one of the servant of the Father being sent out into the world to bring others into his covenant. And in that archetype, we can find ourselves in this type as we've all been tasked with doing the same thing go into all the world and spread the message that the family of Abraham, the family of promise and covenant, is accepting members. That's the good news of the gospel in a very oversim- overly simplified form. Last week, that message was shared with Rebecca and Laban, and interest was shown by them that they would like to know more. And so, this week, the servant begins to tell the story, to tell that more. There are several levels of importance to the story, and we're going to look at each one of these that I've been able to identify. But don't, don't assume that what I've been able to identify is the end of the matter, please. Take some time and always, always take some time and search deeper in the text, deeper than even I have been. Because there's a lot of stuff that I don't include in these teachings for the sake of time. Or for because I just simply don't see it myself. It takes a lot of different eyes to see the truth, looking at it from different perspectives. So the first thing that comes to mind as we read this is what I mentioned earlier. The Bible has a very limited space to tell the story. Now, we know this book to be able to compact down into a few words events that take years and decades. In fact, more space is spent on this one sequence of events than is spent on Abraham retrieving Lot from Ketileo the appearance of Melchizedek, that centrally important character. More space is spent here than on both of the incidents of Sarah being taken into another man's house, added together. More space is spent on this narrative than on the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, or Cain and Abel, or even the Akedah. And yet, we tend to skip right past this when we read it. Bah, it's repeating itself, and it's rather boring. There's no action. Let's skip forward some. Let's get to the good parts. But the sheer volume of this chapter should and has caused us to slow down and to dig deeper into this chapter because the amount of space dedicated to this story should clue us in to the absolute necessity of understanding this chapter and what it's trying to convey, to discover what it is that the author is affirming and demonstrating through this story. So let's look at three differences that occur when we compare the two tellings of the story, and I think that they will perhaps help us to understand the significance of this repetition because the differences can, after all, point us to the truth of this chapter. So, the first thing I want to look at is the way in which the servant steeps his message to the family. He uses some language in his retelling that is not included in the initial story. This language is meant to appeal to the listeners subtly, and I believe there to be a specific reason for it. There are two phrases that are used that have a word changed or added. If we compare verse 4 and verse 38, There's an extra phrase that is added in the retelling. In verse 4, Avraham says simply, "'Go to my relatives''. But here in verse 38, he adds, "'To my father's house and to my relatives''. The initial command did not include Avraham's father's house. So what is the servant doing here by adding this phrase? Well, he's doubling down on that familiar relationship that was inherently present. And as we see later, this appeal to familial identity is something that the servant then leverages when he presents his call to action. Another change that we'll notice in the comparison is one that we miss in many English translations. Of the several translations that I examined, only the ESV made a distinction in the three words that we're going to look at. But they then got the actual meaning mixed up in those. Other translations were not quite so picky in their word choice, and so the distinction may not be that great. So the first word is the Hebrew word na'ara, and we see this word used in verse 14 and in verse 16. And this word simply means a young woman or a girl, and is usually reserved for a woman who was of marrying age. This word could apply to any young woman, whether single, prostitute, available for marriage or not, and it's a very general term with a wide range of uses. In the ancient Near East, this simply meant old enough to bear children. Nothing more. The second word is betchila, and it's found in verse 16 alongside na'ara. And this word simply means virgin, which we see this word immediately defined in the verse, not having been with a man. So the interesting thing here is that neither of these words appears in the servant's retelling. There are two words used to describe her in the story. First is Isha, which is a woman or a wife. This word is found all throughout the chapter, from beginning to end, because this word means wife just as much as it means woman. There's no distinction in Hebrew between Ish, woman, and Ish, wife. The servant never uses Na'ar when speaking to her family, though. He only uses Isha, woman. He's recognizing she's not simply a young girl. It's as if by referring to her as such, he's suggesting that the deal is done. She's been raised into womanhood through this marriage contract. The second is Alma, and it's found in verse 43. And this word. This word is a bit nuanced. Some say that it doesn't mean virgin, because there's already a word in Hebrew for virgin. That's the word betula, which we saw earlier. Rather that it simply means a woman of marrying age. But alas, there is also already a word in the Hebrew for that as well, na'ara. So this word seems to be a combination of both words, or perhaps with a flavor of both. This word is derived from the Hebrew word for veil, one that is veiled or hidden or kept out of sight. And perhaps if we understood veils in the ancient Near East, we could better understand the nuance of this word. So there's an article called, With Her Gauzy Veil Before Her Face, The Veiling of Women in Antiquity, written by Stephen and Shirley Ricks, and it gives two interpretations of why ancient cultures would veil women, only one of which is actually at play in this story. Unmarried women of marrying age, and available for marriage, would wear a veil before their wedding. Anytime that a woman was in public, her face would be covered. It was not until the night of the consummation of her marriage that the woman's veil would be lifted, symbolizing that the husband was taking possession of the woman. It was at this point that the woman would then put on her nose or earring and could go around unveiled, because now she was married, she was claimed, she didn't need to hide anymore. She actually needed the excuse to show off her ring, proving that she was in covenant to someone else. The veil symbolized that the woman was available for a proposition of marriage. It is also a statement of the girl's virginity. A girl who was unmarried and yet not a virgin wouldn't wear a veil, and was considered by society to be a prostitute. There are some nuanced exceptions to this, but that's unimportant for today's discussion. So the word Alma contains a variety of nuanced meanings within itself. It's a combination of two previous words and it means a woman who is both a virgin and available for marriage. And it's this word that is used in Isaiah 7.14 in the prophecy of Immanuel. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore Hashem Himself gives you a sign, Look, the Alma conceives and gives birth to a son, and shall call his name Immanuel." Here in chapter 24, this is the very first use of that word in all of Scripture. In fact, this chapter is the first occurrence of the word na'ara, as well as bethulah, all three of the words that we're looking at right now. So let's go back a bit, because we're still on this first difference between these two speeches, after all. So the difference up to now being the addition of Abraham's father's house and the absence of na'ar, but rather a term with more honor than simply a girl and less forceful and crude than bethulah. Both of these additions reveal that the servant is perhaps purposefully making a subtle attempt to appeal to the honor, not only of Abraham, but is giving honor to Rebecca and, by extension, to her family. So let's summarize the first difference as an appeal to honor. The servant is appealing to the family's honor. The second difference we will explore is the third in appearance. We'll go back to the other one in just a moment. I find it to be the most profound of the three, so I want to wrap up with it. So this difference is here is uh, one that was pointed out last week. The order of the occurrences in verse 22 and 23, and the retelling of the same in verse 47. For some reason, the servant reverses the order of discovering the girl's family and making the proposal of marriage, or giving the nose ring and the bracelets. We talked last week about how the order of events as they occurred might indicate the servant's unwillingness to allow personal judgments to determine their outcome. He made the proposal to the girl who fit the bill. Not based on her honor or her community. Not based on her family name or affiliation. In the ancient Near East and elsewhere, (laughs) this would have been seen as a very stupid idea. You asked a girl to marry without even knowing her name. Without knowing her family are you an idiot? A simple retelling of the story as it happened may have endangered the entire thing as Rebecca's parents would have reconsidered letting their daughter leave with a man who operated in this way. The unfortunate fact is that allowing God to make your decisions as a way of life that will leave you doing things that seem foolish to those who do not know God. 1 Corinthians one eighteen says, For the word of the cross is indeed foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Applied to this circumstance, this verse might read, For the offering of marriage to an unknown girl is foolishness to those who are not in covenant, but to those in covenant, it is God's will being manifested. The servant changed the order so that the family didn't have any reason to doubt him or to question his sanity. If he showed any weakness at all in this situation, the family would have taken advantage of it. How do we know this? learn about Laban. We're going to later." And it it was his way, and it was the way of the world, to exploit weaknesses and to take advantage of others. They would have either demanded more, they might have delayed his return until they decided, or any other number of things could have happened that they could have come up with some sort of excuse why you can't leave just yet. In this culture, weakness was to be exploited. Best not to leave them an opening. And so the servant forestalls this by being shrewd in his proposition to her parents, shrewd in action by letting God choose, and shrewd in speech by not giving a toehold to the unscrupulous. To some this might seem as if the servant were simply attempting to save face or to retain his honor, and they would be right. But what was his motivation for saving face, for retaining his honor? Was it for the sake of his honor, simply, or was it for the sake of success in the mission that he had been given? It's in this specific case that caused me to open with the idea that ancient peoples were not concerned with the specifics of the events, but rather with the overall message. To the ancient mind, the story and message took precedence. The specifics were expendable and even malleable. And we'll look at a few more examples of this before we end for today. The second difference, if we were to boil it down to its barest meaning, it might be called reordering truth to save face. Not a lie, simply more concerned about the success of the message and the mission, and not so concerned about the specifics. And so far we've seen the servant appeal to honor of his audience, and then he reordered the truth in order to make it appeal to them. So what is the third difference here? Well, the third difference appears in the occurrence of a word that we examined also last week, in which we will examine in much greater depth in an upcoming episode in about five months or so. It's chesed. In the prayer that the servant said at the beginning of this chapter, he used the word chesed twice, and then once again in his prayer of thanksgiving. Chesed is usually translated as kindness, mercy, or loving kindness, but also, as we discussed, It has something to do with demonstrating your loyalty to a covenant. In the servant's recounting of his initial prayer and then later thanksgiving, chesed is suspiciously absent. Instead, the servant shifts the focus of his prayer from God's chesed to Avraham, to the idea of God bringing prosperity to his mission. Why would the servant make this change? Why would he call on God's chesed in his prayer, but then report that he asked God to simply profit his venture? Well, I think to understand this, we have to look at the way that the ancient pagan cultures understood and interacted with their gods. In the ancient mind, the gods were fickle, they are dangerous, they were to be feared because the slightest infraction could turn a god against you and you would have no idea why. They were to be kept close because they could bring great wealth and honor. But things like starvation, floods, blizzards, disease, early death, barrenness, and more were seen as a curse of the gods. Sacrifices would then be made in worship and would be engaged in for two primary purposes. One, to avoid a random god's displeasure and the curses that would result from a failure to do so. And two, to gain favor from the gods, to be elevated in status, and to then have good luck or blessing from the gods. Ancient pagan worship was based either on greed or fear, the avoidance of pain, or the gaining of honor. There's no concept in pagan worship of covenant, especially to the loyalty of a covenant, from a god. Because gods were fickle, they could change their word at any moment, and humans were simply at their mercy. Gods didn't do anything out of love or compassion. They only operated out of a sense of greed and gain and petty reprisal. Chesed was something that existed in human relationships, but not in a human divine relationship. So when the servant reveals that Hashem had prospered Abraham in verse 35, and that the mission was one that was blessed by Hashem in verse 40, it was only natural that the servant then appeal to the concept of prosperity and success, not chesed, covenant, or relationship. In fact, if we read through this speech very carefully, the entire relationship of Hashem with Abraham is steeped in this type of understanding. We do, however, read of Chesed in the servant's story, though. He does appeal to Chesed once in his retelling, and that's in his final call to action. In verse 49, the servant calls upon the Chesed of Rebekah's family to Avraham. As I just said, Chesed was something that was reserved for interpersonal relationships. The servant in the beginning, when making a request from God, he calls on God's chesed. And in the second part, when making a request from men, he then calls on their chesed. And in both cases, the servant finds favor. Proverbs 3 speaks on this entire episode when it says, verses 3 through 6, Let not chesed and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the table of your heart thus finding favor and good insight in the eyes of Elohim and man. Trust in Hashem with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Know Him in all your ways, and He makes all your paths straight. This is exactly what the servant does. He keeps true to his master in his own chesed. And then he calls on both God and man to exercise chesed. Not on his own behalf, but rather because of his master. In himself, the Master had no honor. He was not a man to be obeyed by freemen. It was only because of his position as the head servant of Abraham that he had any honor. And as he proceeds, as he asks for things, he calls on this chesed to be demonstrated, and in so doing he finds favor from both God and man. The servant of all mankind, Yeshua, he also found himself in this position. In Luke 2, 52, Yeshua increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and men. The key to servanthood? Chesed, acting in loyalty to the covenant, and truth are called out in Proverbs 3, as the keys to gaining this. So what is the servant doing in this third difference? Well, he's doing something similar to the last, in which he's molding the message to the audience. But I think there's more going on here. Because he shifts the chesed from God showing chesed to Abraham, to make an appeal to the audience to demonstrate their own chesed to Abraham, The initial difference to go to Avraham's father's household is brought full circle in this. Because Avraham is rich, he's blessed by a powerful God, and he is family. The message that the servant is giving is, you can trust in him. In approaching in this way, the servant is overcoming possible areas of contention before they can even come up. This third change could be summed up as appealing to their better nature. And in each of these instances, we see something going on. The servant is not staying exactly true to the events. Slight changes are made, and each of these changes we see plays to the expectations of the audience, or it appeals to something that the audience holds dear. This is something that we ourselves can use, and it's a way that Paul used, because he used this method of sharing his message in a couple of places. But perhaps the best example we find of this is in Acts 17, verse 16-34. through It says, But while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, the Spirit was stirred up within him when he saw that the city was utterly idolatrous. Therefore, indeed, he was reasoning in the congregation with the Jews and with the worshippers in the marketplace daily with those who met there. And some of the epicurean and stoic philosophers encountered him and some were saying what does this babbler wish to say and others said he seems to be a proclaimer of strange mighty ones because of them he brought the good news yeshua and the resurrection so they laid hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying are we able to know what this fresh teaching is of which you speak for you are bringing some strange matters to our ears we wish then to know what these mean For all the Athenians and the strangers living there spent their leisure time in doing nothing but to speak or to hear what is fresh. And having stood in the midst of the Arapagus, Saul said, Men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in every manner. For passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Not knowing then whom you worship, I make him known to you. HaShem, who made the world and all that is in it. Thus one being, master of heaven and earth, does not dwell in dwellings made with hands, nor is he served with men's hands, as if needing anything, himself giving all life and breath to everything else. And he has made from one blood every nation of men, to dwell on all the face of the earth, having ordained beforehand the times and the boundaries of their dwelling, to seek the master, if at least they should reach for him. And Find him, though he is not from each one of us. For in him we live and move and are, as also some of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. Now then, since we are the offspring of God, we should not think that the God is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by the skill and the thought of man. Truly then, having overlooked these times of ignorance, God now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has set a day on which he is going to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed, having given proof of this to all by raising him from the dead. In hearing of the resurrection of the dead, some indeed mocked, while others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. And so Paul went out from among them. But some men joined him and believed among them Dionysus the Arpagite, and the woman named Damaris, and others with them. So, what is Paul doing in this example that's different than his usual modus operandi? Well, Paul is changing the gospel message in order to make it appeal to Greek philosophers. He's speaking their language, he's using evidence and arguments that they would understand. In fact, he's quoting directly from some of their own philosophers. What really stands out here is, though, that he does not use scripture in any way. He does not call on prophecy, he doesn't quote Torah or the Psalms. He calls on what they know and what they already hold dear in order to get the message across. He customizes his message to make it appeal to his audience. We find in a later book, Paul describes what's going on here. 1 Corinthians 9, 20-22 says, For although I am free from all, I made myself a servant to all, in order to win more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. And to those who are under the Torah, as under the Torah, so as to win those who are under the Torah. To those without the Torah, as without Torah not being without Torah toward God, but under Torah of Messiah, so as to win those who are without Torah. To the weak I became as weak, so as to win the weak. To all men I have become all, so as to save some by all means. Now, many will say that in this Paul is changing his actions. He's keeping the Torah in the company of some and not keeping the Torah in the company of others, that he's customizing his own actions. In this, though, Paul is not talking of his actions. He's talking about molding his message to the hearer, as we saw in Acts 17. I mean, think about it. Paul didn't become a murderer to win over murderers, and he didn't become a sexually idolatrous in order to win over the sexually idolatrous. When he says he became as one without the Torah, that means that he didn't quote the Torah to make his argument. They would not have cared what his religious texts said. They were philosophers. They cared about a reasoned argument. And perhaps the mystery being revealed which would appeal to a Platonic thinker. So did Paul become as an idol worshipper to reach idol worshippers? Did he become as an adulterer to reach adulterers? Did he become a murderer to reach murderers? After all, Paul opens in 1 Corinthians 9 by saying that he is free from all. And some would take this passage to mean that he is saying such things, if you take their claims to their logical conclusions. Or did Paul simply rather change the way that he delivered his message based on his audience? When facing Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, he became as them and steeped his message in philosophical thought. Why? In order to save some by all means. Any other understanding in this passage of 1 Corinthians leaves Paul as a huge hypocrite. If 1 Corinthians is speaking of Paul changing his actions and level of obedience in order to please men, then what standing did Paul have to rebuke Peter in the book of Galatians? Why does he castigate Peter for changing his actions to appeal to the circumcision party? After all, one can say that Peter was simply becoming as the circumcision member to win those of the circumcision party to themselves. So, he's not talking about hypocrisy. That's not what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 9. And I assert that this is not what Paul was saying, but rather that the evidence points to the fact that Paul would change his message to reach his audience, just as the servant does in this chapter. So, what exactly can we pull from all of this? What things of life are contained here? The message of the gospel itself is not a formula or spell. It's not a one-size-fits-all proposition. We cannot be lazy about our approach of sharing Messiah with others. We can't simply fall back on the Roman's road and expect it to work in every case. Add to this that God has a million arrows in his arsenal. Seven literal days of creation appeals to some. 13.7 billion years appeals to others. We can't get so caught up in the specifics that the author himself did not understand or affirm. Flat earth, sphere earth, hollow earth, donut earth—who cares? Each message resonates with some, and as long as Messiah is the cornerstone of the message, it cannot fail to succeed in some dark corners of the world. One house, two house, no house, again, who cares? It's the message that's being affirmed that matters. If that message is Yeshua and his kingdom, then the message cannot fail. Some will hear it, and we must be willing to speak in the language of anyone in order to gain some. We cannot limit ourselves, because we must know only one thing—Messiah and Him crucified. All else is window dressing. This is something that I've talked about before, and it's likely something that will present itself again. And it's very important, and we simply cannot miss this point. The message is vitally important, but the means of sharing the message is as varied as the people who hear it. So the next time you find yourself criticizing a teacher or a speaker or someone who's out on the streets sharing the gospel, and you hear them say something that you think is wrong, ask yourself, is it necessary to get upset at them because of something that they may not know that you do? To get upset at them because they don't steep the message in the same language you do? Perhaps to get upset at someone because they're using things from the world and not from Scripture? If that's the way we're going to act, then we got to throw Paul out too, because he did the same thing. We got to throw this messenger out. We got to throw out the messenger of Abraham to Rebecca. He wasn't doing the right thing if he was steeping his message to his audience rather than staying true to what the word was passed down to him. All too often we get caught up in what other people are doing wrong and how they're saying things in ways that we wouldn't say it. I I do this myself. I do. And I try to catch myself on it and get better at it, and I believe that I am. But we've got to allow God to work in all ways, because we are not all hands, feet. We're not all noses or even ears. We are all different, and we all work together to build the body of Messiah, which means that the message that is going to appeal to each person is different. And we've got to allow the Spirit to lead us on that. Who is that? The messenger that goes before us to prosper our way. The Holy Spirit that goes out into the world before us in order to make our message appeal, to make it successful in the ears of the hearers. So, as you go into this new week and all that you do and everywhere you go, De'Rish Chai, seek life, Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to De'Rish Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com. That's seeklifesc.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare Shchai, as we seek life. Shalom.